gather here this morning not merely to hear the opinion of men, but to hear the word of God. And so as we go through the book of Ephesians together this morning, we're continuing in this series that is showing us how it is the gospel that transforms broken, burnout, and bored people in our lives and beginning in our own hearts. So Ephesians lays out, if any book of the Bible does, just a, a clear and direct presentation of the gospel as not merely true news, but good news. We've got many people in our city and maybe in many pockets in our own heart who believe that Jesus is true, but do we believe he's good? They believe the gospel is real, but do we really believe that the gospel is good news that can not only change our heads, but change our hearts, and then we pray would overflow through our hands into our city and into our everyday lives. And so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we're going to look here this morning at one of these passages of scripture that many of us are familiar with, but we want to ask that the Holy Spirit would take these words and penetrate deep into our hearts what he wants to do today. So God's word says, through the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Father, we uh, confess already we, we can but scratch the surface of the glory of the truth you revealed to us in this word. But we thank you, God, that you have revealed to us who you are, rich in mercy, kind in grace. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, today that you would take us deeper, that you would enlighten our hearts so that we might have a, a more fuller and richer experience of the grace of God, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems in the past several years there's been an epidemic in certain cities in our country, and a lot of debates and political issues arise around this epidemic. But at the end of the day, one thing is clear, is that people are dying because there's poison in the water. So cities have tapped into water sources to save money, and through those water sources, lead poisoning and other types of poisoning have got into the homes, and people are dying. And in these cities now, people are being, being sued, government officials, who had some idea that this was going on, but failed to act upon it. I mean, nobody's dying, at least at the start. It seems it's life as normal, 
Nobody's necessarily complaining about the taste of the water, and yet people have died. In one particular city, several people are being sued because a dozen people have died due to poisoning through the water. One was an 85-year-old man. Many, many others have sickened by this. And so with all the debates around the causes of that, who should be punished by that, it's very clear there's this poison that gets in the water that kills people. And what we're going to talk about today is a poison that's in the water of our hearts, a poison that's in the water of our city, a poison that's particularly, I believe, in the water of what we call the religious south that many of us may not detect, that many of us may be drinking in our lives, and that many of us honestly may be serving to others without even realizing the damage that we're doing. And this is a poison that is known as legalism. Legalism. It's a part of the reason that many people in our city who would claim to know Jesus have not yet experienced a life-changing relationship with him. It's the reason that when you think of people who follow Christ, when you hear the word church, the word joy is not the first word that comes to your mind. But things like judgmental, things like holier than thou, things like get on my level, a poison and it's dangerous what are some other reasons if you're new sometimes we think out loud together what are some other reasons that legalism is so dangerous and before you answer that let's just let's define it a little bit in case you may be struggling to put some words around this legalism in the world is the belief that we earn our value or keep our value based on our performance you can be an unbeliever and be a legalist legalism is just in the world I earn my value and keep my value based on what I do. You can be a corporate legalist. I'll do whatever it takes to win at work. That's how I keep my value. You can be in a gang and be a legalist. I'll keep the codes of the streets, have my, the backs of my brothers to keep my value. But in the religious world, it can be defined this way. It's the belief that we earn or keep God's acceptance or his favor based on what we do or don't do. So help me think out loud here. Why, why is that so dangerous in our own lives and in our mission as a church? Shelby? Great. You didn't hear. You put yourself and God in a box. You, you constrain who you are and who God is to your activities. Title? I just want to own that's true of me a lot of days. My emotions are attached to my performance. What else, Jonathan? Wow. You didn't hear Jonathan. It's, we're comparing ourselves to others. Less grateful is worse. Objectifies humans. Val said it in just input, output machine. And denies God's grace. We, we could say a lot more. Does somebody have something? Right. The focus is, is not on God. It's on the wrong thing. But we can see here by the quick responses, this is a real problem. But what we have to own, and it's easy, the, the number one uh, obstacle that all of us, including this guy right here, have to realize is in this room right now, is what we call self-righteousness. Right? It's easy for all of us to talk about the legalist out there. 
right? The legalist in some other place. But what I really believe, if we're honest, is there is a legalist and or a legalism that is at work in all of our hearts. So you might be a legalist if, if you feel more valuable when you get your to-do list done than on days when you don't get your to-do list done. Not that you shouldn't be glad that you get it done, but there's a difference in gladness and finding your value. You might be a legalist if you compare your performance, Jonathan spoke to this, compare your performance to others in life or in the church to make you feel better about yourself. Well, you know, maybe I didn't do everything, but I did better than they did. You might be a legalist if you believe God loves you more. You really do. On the days when you execute your spiritual disciplines well, than on the days when you don't. Some of you this morning, no doubt, have walked into this gathering to worship. And your confidence to approach the throne of God has based upon the performance you believe that you gave this week as a Christian. If that's you, if you're less hesitant to lift your hands or lift your head based on your performance this week, then you have legalism at work in your heart. Because you believe that God's acceptance of you is based on what you did this week. You may be a legalist. You get angry at yourself, angry at others. If you're honest, angry at God when you work hard for God or for whatever and you don't see the payoff you believe you deserve. You might be a legalist if you feel judged by others or inadequate when you see others doing well. So you're comparing in a different direction. You may not be the person that says, oh wow, look, I did better than they did. You may be the person who says, wow, look, everybody always does better than me. And that leads you into despair. It leads you into anger. And I, I just want to say, if you, don't, if you know me, you know this, like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not only with you in that sometimes. I was with you in that this morning. I'm with you in that right now. I will wrestle when I finish this message this morning and say, wow, I probably went 10 minutes longer than I planned to, like every time. And then somehow, even by going 10 minutes longer, forgot the one part that I was most excited about. And then, then I will have a decision to make whether I'm going to mope around my wife and kids the rest of the day because I'm value, basing my value on my performance or whether I'm going to hold my head high, not in a self-esteem, but a Christ-esteem and spread joy with those that I'm around. We need to, to do business with this issue of legalism. And usually the check engine light on our souls are our emotions. When you find yourself getting really angry, when you find yourself maybe getting really cynical, or sometimes even when you find yourself getting really sad, and there can be other causes to this. I'm not trying to simplify this. But often it's all rooted in this self-doubt that we have, that I have, that is grading myself based on how I perform in life. Legalism is nothing new. Legalism started in Eden where Satan came and he stood before the people, the prince of the power of the air, and he, and he said to Adam and Eve, you know, I know God's given you an identity. I know he's given you everything that you need. But if you really want to be something, if you want to be like God, then you do something. 
You take action. You make yourself. You prove yourself. But the good news is, as far back as this problem, this sin of legalism goes, and its poison that kills us, and the addiction that it creates in us to just fuel our sense of worth by our action of performance, God's grace goes back farther. And however great legalism is, God's grace is greater. So what we want to do, if we look into this passage this morning, is to see that the only way that we can cleanse the poison of legalism out of our system is through the power of grace. The only way that we can cleanse the poison of legalism is through the power of grace. And how do we get there? Through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The first thing is we have to understand sin. Now, nobody likes to talk about sin. Sin's a bad word, right? Like we, we, and we, we use words like this here a lot. Brokenness, woundedness. Those are good biblical words too. But for some reason, you know, we're more comfortable with those, right? Sin, we sound like you know somebody's great grandpa, right? That's railing on something or threatening somebody. But the Bible is very clear that if we want to experience the power of grace so that we cleanse our lives of the poison of legalism, then we have to have a biblical understanding of the nature of sin and the nature of humanity in relationship to sin. So notice, these are things that legalists hate. And we'll think about that in a second. The first thing is in verse 1, in ourselves, we were dead. Now notice what it doesn't say. It's not saying we were sick. Right? This isn't just like some sort of metaphor. It's saying we were dead. Sick people can contribute to their healing. Sick people have a, a role to play when a doctor comes to them to help them get well. Dead people can contribute nothing. If you want to, if you don't believe me, hopefully this is self-evident, go to a, to a cemetery today and try to get the dead corpse to cooperate with you. Right? Tell it how much you love it. Tell it how much or her how much you want it to live. Give it food. Right? It's dead. This is the nature of humanity outside of the grace of God is that we were dead in our sins. This is so important to kill legalists that we, we get that. But also we were enslaved. So it, it's not this, this deadness that leads to inactivity, but it's a deadness that leads to sort of this zombie lifestyle that we're enslaved to trespasses and sins. So notice we're enslaved in a few directions. We just don't have time this morning to, to, to get under every leave of all these trees here. But first, following the course of this world. That is the, the system of thinking that is against the way of God. We're enslaved to that apart from grace. We're just We're in the stream. Also following the prince of the power of the air. This is talking about Satan, the one who works in concert with the world to lead us away from God. The one in Eden saying, hey, I know God has said this about you, but come on, give me a break. We know that's not how the world works. Quit playing all that fantasy land Christian identity stuff. Come on, you know that you've got to earn it. You've got to prove it. You've got to do it. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the foundation of disobedience then is a, is a deadness. But also among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Our flesh. Not talking about our physicality, but talking about our, our non-spirit-led existence. This fact that we've been turned in on ourselves. The desires are the passions of the flesh. That everything is about me getting what I want. Me being at the center of my existence. 
This is the reality of humanity apart from grace. What does that equal, verse 3? It means that in ourselves, all we deserve is the judgment of God. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All we deserve is God's judgment because we have willingly chosen to live for a kingdom of self. We have willingly chose to make our banquet in the grave. Now legalists hate these truths. Why do you think a legalist would not like to hear this? Val, there's nothing they can do. Anyone else? That's a big one. Let's just leave it at that. Talk more about it later. A legalist doesn't want to hear that we're all dead, equally dead in sin apart from grace. There's no competition in that. There's no self-congratulation in that. There's no self-help motivation. There's no personal celebration. There's no, I'm, I'm better than you. It's just we're all equally needy. It's like if you were to pass two funerals today. Two funeral processions. One funeral procession is full of Mercedes, Maseratis, other great cars. I don't know the name of and you were to pass another one that had like my truck with the frame about to fall out of it literally old beaters I mean what's the reality death is death no matter how rich you are it doesn't matter your socioeconomic background it doesn't matter whatever your past is it doesn't matter whatever you think your future is is death is this great leveler. And what Paul is saying is this future death that we're all born into in the wrath of God really is in us already at work from the start due to our rebellion. We live in a world, though, that likes to walk around and say, you know, it's all about how good you are. We live in a world that likes to say it's all about who you know. And you know why I like to say that? Because really how it works. The good news this morning is that regardless of how it looks in the world, regardless how it looks in our clothes, in our cars, in our competitions, in our successes, is we are all equally needy before God. The legalist is living a lie that a prettier corpse matters. Legalism thinks that it, it, it's entitled because it has earned. We need to ask ourselves, who, who, who are we tempted to think we're better than in life? Who are we tempted to look down our nose at? When are we tempted to think that we deserve? Some of you this morning may be full of anger and bitterness. And it's because you think, I deserve better than. Who is the center of your existence? The first step to cleansing the poison of legalism is to come to grips with the reality that the Bible teaches us in regard to our position of sin is that we deserve nothing. We can earn nothing. We are the center 
legal estate bound saints are basically okay, basically better than other people. But when they aren't found to be uniquely better, they get angry and bitter. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, or you have unbelievers in your life, there's good news. It's good news. Here's the good news. It's worse than you think. That you're not alone. No matter how the world looks, grades, keeps score, is that apart from Christ, we are all equally in need of grace. So we need some good news, right? This doesn't sound like good news, but this is a foundation to kill legalism. The unity we share as those who are in rebellion against God. So we understand sin's foundational experience, the power of grace, but also understanding our salvation is foundation for experiencing the power of grace. Because one thing that's going to be clear here in verses 4 through 9 is that our salvation is a free gift. It is a free gift. Salvation, simply a word talking about how we're saved, how we're rescued. Verses 1-3 speaks to the question that's begged. Saved from what? Right? Saved from the judgment that we deserve due to our self-centered rebellion against God. How, how do we escape that? If we can't earn it, if we can't compete our way out of it, if we can't pull ourselves by our bootstraps to get out of that, then how do we get out of that? We have this little phrase here in the Bible that is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of the world that I want to challenge all of us to take into our lives this week. Whenever you face any hint of legalism in your life, any negative emotion that arises due to either how you view your performance or how other people view your performance, but God. But God. God. I do not mean this in any trivial, blasphemous way. But, but I'm going to say it. Maybe it'll help you remember it, even if it sounds super stupid. Sorry for using that word. God's butt is bigger than any of your buckets. Alright, those who are immature know why that sounds funny. I'm not challenging God. But I, want, I, I, I mean that. It's just too true to not say but God is bigger than any brokenness in your life. You may be in a relationship in your life right now where you every time you walk into it, you can see in that person's eyes they're disappointed in you. Some of you may have grew up in families like that. Where every time you walked in the house, your mom, your dad, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, spouse, child may be looking up to the parent. It's a two-way street sometimes. Is a look of like, golly bum, you, you just fail me. You're just never enough. Nice try, but come on, can't you do better and try harder? And what I want us to hear in those moments, and sometimes it's just us saying that to ourselves, is but God. But God what? He's rich in mercy. Rich in it. Ever how deep our spiritual poverty is? Ever how true our failures may look and be? is God's mercy is greater. The wealth of his mercy is greater than the poverty of our sin or our suffering. Also because of the great love with which he loved us. It's no matter how great other people's hate or rejection of us or our hate and rejection of ourselves, God loves us. And sometimes we say it this way because this helps people. God doesn't just love you, he likes you. And if you need to hear it the other way, God doesn't just like you, he loves you. Here's the mind blower, if you're thinking, and 
you don't know this about me, and I'd never let anybody else in here know this, because if y'all did know this about me, I know you would reject me. It says this, even when we were dead, in our text, even when we were dead, that God's sovereign desire to love you is greater than the sickness of the death of sin that comes out of your life. This is amazing. He's looking at us as, as this zombie. I'm not recommending watching zombie stuff, but anyway, if you've watched it, you're like, that's gross, right? I mean, zombie shows play on the grossness of that, right? Like, hey, the plot line's getting a little too weak, so let's, you know, chop off a head and have another zombie eat it or whatever, right? So imagine, as gross as gross can get in our hearts apart from Christ, right? There it is, zombies eating another head. Whatever your version of that was this week in your life, whatever your version of that is, was like in your story at whatever point, it's God and his love said, I want you. Even then, he said, I love you. Not when you were at your best, but when, when you were at your worst. I love you. And then he does what only he can do, and he makes us alive. He kisses his corpse bride to life. How does he do this? Not by just a God who with a twist of a wand says, you're forgiven. No, he, he's a just God. So he does it in Christ. In Christ Jesus. Through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, taking on our sin, and the resurrection of Jesus, he unites us with him. And then not only raises us to life, but mind-blowing, he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that we're not only saved from death, we're seated at the right hand of the throne with Jesus. He's not saved you and said, you know, I kind of have to save you, but you stay over here in the corner because you're an embarrassment to me. I really don't want anybody to know that you're my son or daughter, you know, because that might make the family look bad. You know, once you get your act together and you start performing and getting on, on task, then maybe we can bring you, let you come out. No, he just says, not only am I going to sit you at the table, I'm going to sit you at the right hand of my throne. Everybody look, this is my son, this is my daughter. I'm proud of them. I love them, not because of their performance, but because they have been united with the perfect performance of my son on their best days and on their worst days, on your best day, on your worst day, on my best day, and on my worst days and days, it feels like. This is the reality of the grace of God that I can't undo through the power of the work of his son. There's so much here we don't have time. And it's not going to run out, verse 7. In the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Is that God is committed to spend the rest of all eternity showing you more of that grace. He enjoys it. He's not a begrudging father who's like, well, I guess I better give him a little grace. You know, been tough. Let's give a little, you know, time to be nice. You know, I yelled at you. Let's go get ice cream. Welcome to my life. No, he's like, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life I want to shower you in my grace. A kindness that will never run out. So that verses 8 and 9 that really summarize all this. And I encourage you to memorize this if you haven't. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Like even your faith. It, it's Not even your faith is something you take credit for. It's, it's of grace. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
If this doesn't change us, it's just because we don't realize yet how deep and powerful this grace is. I had a friend one time. You probably have friends that tell the same old stories over and over. But one of the, one of the stories that he used to tell, and I don't know why I thought this was so funny when I was in high school, was that his Christmas, how his grandmother would every year make him a hand-woven dinosaur sweater. So just imagine how cool it would be to, to wear your middle school or high school a hand-knitted sweater with a dinosaur on it that your grandmother made you. Now, his grandmother thought this was great and thought he should get excited about it, and his parents, of course, would tell him every year, hey, your grandma's worked hard on that sweater. Act like you like it. It's like, oh, man. Why? Because this is like an unnecessary gift, right? It was forced. She felt like she had to do something for me. And then you're thinking, it's cheap, right? Grandma, go buy me something. Because the kind of gift that doesn't change us is one that we think is unnecessary, one that we think is forced, and one that we think is cheap. If we're honest, this is why the, God, the grace of God, every, every probably 90% of people in Cleveland, Tennessee, can probably sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. But how many people are truly experiencing a daily life-changing relationship with Jesus? It's because we think grace was not really that necessary. God kind of had to do it. And you know, it was cheap. The reality we see in God's word today that should lead grace to change us is that it was, it was free. God chose to love you. And all you deserve, he would have been just to give you his judgment. He would have remained a good, great, holy, just God to give us what we wanted. But he freely chose think it was cheap because it didn't cost us anything if anything it's cheap it cost him the ultimate price of sending his son to die in our place all of that in verses 1 through 3 the death the, 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 the living death that zombie life that we lived apart from Christ God took all of that and put that on his son he put the stench of our sin suffering and death on Jesus he bore that in our place and then Jesus, in return, gave us all his perfection and righteousness and place before the Father. It was not cheap. This is not cheap grace. This is free grace. And it was indispensable. This is our only hope. This is our only hope. If you're here this morning and you are feel trapped in this, this the lure of legalism, or you have been, I just want to encourage you to look right now to Jesus. Put your eyes on him. See him doing for you what you could not do for yourself. You, want, you think you deserve something. You deserve God's judgment. But look to Jesus and see Jesus taking that judgment upon himself. You think you have nothing. Look to Jesus and see him giving you all of what is his to share with you forever. You think you still got to prove yourself? Look to Jesus as the one who proves you, approves you, and seats you at the right hand of God. You've got to get that into your everyday life. You've got to fight. When you fail this week, you're going to be at a crossroads again. You're going to fail at something, right? If you're honest. Say, what for, what, where's my identity at? When others succeed or it seems that others are given more or better than you, will you remember that you've been seated with Christ? When you sin, when you suffer, when life just stinks, or when you work hard and it feels like everything falls apart. Will you remember that the but God that we've been brought into is bigger and better than any other measure of grace? And the last thing here, just quickly, is 
is understanding our sin is foundational for experience the power of God's grace and understanding our salvation is. Last thing is understanding our transformation, how we're changed. Because what's often leveled against people who believe in the powerful grace of God and that, that we contribute nothing to it, either to earn it or the big one for many of us that are Christians, or to keep it, right? Is that then this provides a foundation for us to just go and do whatever we want and to say, well, you know, God's gracious. But the reality is, is that's never how it works. That's not how it works in real life. That's a, that's a red herring argument. If you see that someone has given their all for you, they've given you an indispensable, costly, free gift. If you really receive that for what it is, you can't help but begin to love that person. And to live for that person. And to want to find out how your life syncs up with that. And so this is what verse 10 says. For we are his workmen. It's a game changer. You're not a self-made person. In Christ, you are God's workmanship. You may feel like you're a worthless person sometimes. The reality is, no, you're God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're thinking, well, I don't look like much of a workmanship. You know, I look like maybe a piece of junk to be thrown away, and, you know, because something got messed up on the assembly line when it came to me. However tainted you are by the fall, God has transformed your identity in Christ. And lastly, that we should walk in Him. God has planned for you to live out a life that flows from the worth that you have in the finished work of Christ, and that equals a life of good works. I was listening to someone else teach on this week. He talked about this idea of boasting. And he said a lot of times we think of boasting, we think of just about bragging of our accomplishments. But he said actually in ancient times, and I'm not sure if this really lines up with the biblical times or what, in ancient times what armies would do before they went out to battle is they would prepare themselves for battle by boasting. It's how they got themselves psyched up. They'd say, remember all these people that we've already beat. So they may have great uh, spears, but we have the best archery in the world. Their king may be great, but our king has a nine-foot sword. They would take, this is how they got themselves pumped up to fight. Is they would glory in their accomplishments. They would glory in their kingdom. They would glory in their leadership. If we live off the basis of our accomplishments, if we live out of the power of glorying in ourselves, and like someone said earlier, it's, it's going to be a, an emotional roller coaster of a life. Trust me, I know that's where I live a lot of times. We're like, I got nothing to boast in. But when Christ is our boast alone, then we can find confidence and courage to go out tomorrow into this week to live a life of good works. The legalist wants to boast in themselves. The legalist finds confidence and courage in their own performance. But I just want to ask you if that's you, how's that working for you? You'll either be puffed up when you do well and proud, or you will be deflated and defeated when you do poor. But those who truly do good works for the glory of God, they're boasting in Christ. The legalist finds confidence and courage in their own control, but how's that working for you? You're either a demanding person or a defeated person, but the person who works out of their boast in Christ, they can do good works in any situation. Hey, I didn't even deserve to be this far. I'm just glad I'm even a part of the family, a part of the team. 
The legalist finds confidence and courage in the praise of others. You do that, how's that working for you? You'll either be smiling or you'll feel shame. But those who boasted in Christ can do good works even if they're rejected by others or nobody knows what they're doing. The legalist forgets that they're a part of a bigger story. A bigger story that God has been working by His grace and for His glory and in His Son forever. The legalist, it may look like they perform good works, but all the legalist is performing is what the Bible calls dead works because their works for their own glory and not the glory of God. I want us to imagine as we wrap this up and we move towards the Lord's table what good news we can bring to our city if we go out and live as people freed from the grip of legalism. Can you just imagine our city full of disciples and Christians, your school, your workplace, your home, free of competition of who's, who's getting the value who's getting noticed, who's getting up. Full of love and joy because you can be unknown, you can be misunderstood. You can confront those issues, not out of an insecurity that causes division, but you can talk about those issues out of the security that brings real unity into a world where many people think the church just exists to judge them and to show them how they don't measure up. You can go share honest stories about your brokenness and your sin and your suffering and point them to the only one who can bring healing at the root of all our ill sin and seed of sin. Father, thank you so much for the good news that we have in your grace through the work of Jesus. We pray now as we come to your table that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would revel in the fact that on our best days and our worst days, our security and our confidence is not in our performance, but in the finished work of the body and blood of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, each week we respond to the word of God by coming to the table of our Lord. If you're new with us, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we invite you to participate in this, not as a meaningless ritual or as anything that adds to the security that you have in Christ, but as a, a sign that we are in Christ and we receive by faith alone what Christ has done for us alone. If you're not a believer, we still ask you that you can come and stand with us. You don't have to sit and feel awkward at your seat. You can stand with us and listen to us as we share in the victory of our King. What we want to do, do each week is kind of stand around these tables and boast. But boast in Christ. Boast of Christ. So that we leave this place with confidence and courage the victory of our king.